0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as we think about um, the new year, I know it oftentimes brings with it many resolutions for different people which keep most motivated for on the average of maybe a month. Um, that's about it. Most people are not nearly motivated enough to give up chocolate or to start exercising or whatever it may be, so they just lose heart very soon after the new year. And you know, brethren, when it comes to the Christian life, there are also times when, because of seasons of sorrow or because of busyness or because sometimes of just laziness, we lose motivation to live out our faith as passionately and as faithfully as what we were once committed to doing. And so, if the question has entered your mind, why some kind of motivational message, the answer is because we never want to become merely cozy, comfortable Christians whose heads nod to good doctrine and good preaching, but whose feet drag when it comes to doing the work of the kingdom. And so, with this message, my goal is that as we begin a new year, I want to put before us the things which are to grip our hearts and to constrain us on a daily basis to offer ourselves fully and joyfully, even radically and completely to the service of the Master. And it will look different for each of us, we must recognize that. But the one thing that we should all have in common is the burning desire to please the Lord with whatever we are doing in our lives. And so as we think about this text this morning, I'm going to attempt which, that which is probably unadvisable, which is to preach through one of these great chapters uh, in one sermon. But the point I want to make in doing so is there are times that we need to look at Scripture with a, with a microscope. We look, need to look at all the details and the intricacies to glean all that is there. But as we enter this new year, my goal is to just pan out and get a grasp of the entirety of this passage in one message to put before us the motivation to give ourselves fully to the service of the Master. I would hope for all of us to be encouraged and even motivated by the gravity of the realities that are here in this text, to give ourselves fully to Him. And I'm not by that implying that I view anyone here as as not living for Him now. But friends, do we not have to recognize the countless snares that we face in this world and the many things that are there to take our affections away and to choke out our commitment to live for Christ? Peter says, and he says this in his second letter. He says, now, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what this is this morning, A, a way of reminder. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder to grasp the significance of what Paul is saying here about our Lord. Because if we comprehend these realities, it's going to lead us into lives of greater faith lives of greater service as we see the temporal nature of this world as compared to our eternal home. And maybe for some, maybe for some, this would be the final encouragement for you to step out in faith instead of living in fear. Because I don't know what the Lord has for us as a church or for you individually, but I do know that the Lord would have us make an impact on this world. So just a couple of things about this text before we get started. I want you to just notice, and you can look at it later this afternoon, but just a quick glance through this text. We will note that Paul is building a case for his readers. He has a point to make, and he's putting all this together one paragraph at a time. And just a quick overview, you will notice that he uses the word for or therefore 13 times in 21 verses. So he's clearly after something. He's making a case for them to consider, and he builds this case stacking one conclusion upon another. And that's why I chose the word motivation, because I think it captures to some degree what Paul is doing here. He's pressing them into action, encouraging them to live for Christ, motivating them to give themselves to his service. And so while I'm trying to get all of this in one message, I whittled it down I have to seven points, and so we're just still going to get just an overview of this. Some are longer, some are shorter, but we want to look at seven motivations for us to serve the Master. And the first one is the comparison of temporary groaning with eternal glory. Read with me, follow along as I read the first eight verses of this chapter. Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge? Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be at home with the. We prefer rather to be absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord. Now, brethren, here we have this blunt reminder that in this life we are going to groan. There is going to be difficulty, and yet that's just a reminder to us that we are of another world, and our true home is in heaven. And friends, we need to be honest and admit that we are often a short-sighted people. We see here and now. We get bogged down by what is before us, the difficulties of life that are before us, the things that we are engrossed in, and, and we see too often that we fall into discouragement and that creeps in upon us with its sour fruits of joylessness and so we need wind in our sails we need some encouragement to keep us going because I don't need to convince you that we face difficulties we groan in sickness we groan because of death we groan because of our remaining sin we groan because of dissension between us and someone we love. Most of us at some point groan because of disappointment, and the list goes on and on. In this life, there is groaning. Amen? And is that not a reality? But Jesus promised trouble, trials, and a cross to carry, as well as eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, and a home with him in glory. And so what we see scripture pointing us to is that our groaning is meant to make heaven grow on us. And the groaning of this world is to make the glory of the coming world our great treasure. It's a reminder. The difficulty is a reminder. It's a bullhorn from God that this world is not our home. And sin and sorrow... While real and difficult are temporary, while our reward is eternal. And so here we read something of the coming glory that immortality will be swallowed up by life. This temporary tent will be replaced with a house made for God. Brethren, we are not a helpless people. We are not a hopeless people. In fact, we have great courage because we have these promises. In fact, Paul gets to verse 6, look at verse 6, and he says, Therefore, since we know that, we know some things, and so we're always of good courage. And so here we see again that we are not of this world. If this world is all we have, it does not satisfy, it will only make you groan. And yet good courage is ours to the degree that we place our hope in the coming revelation of Christ when we will receive our eternal inheritance. So someone may say, yes, of course, we believe that and we have eternity to look forward to and I'm grateful for that, but what about tomorrow? How am I going to get through tomorrow or the next year? Because we see trials coming, you know that things are happening. Our hope comes to us in many places, but here we see that Paul reminds us again in verse 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, we have help now. We have the reminder that we live each day by the precious promise of our Lord. Every word that he has spoken has been given to us as a promise that we can lay hold of and live each day, knowing that nothing will separate us from him, not heartaches, heart attacks, dissension, disappointment, any of those things. Nothing coming in in this year will separate us. No amount of suffering, no amount of loss, even the loss of life, Has he not promised to give us all we need for life and godliness? And so the motivation, friends, is this. We are to live by faith in what Christ has promised us. Every word he has promised us. Namely, that our temporary groaning will give way to eternal life where sin and sorrow will be no more. And so we can be of good courage today to the degree that we walk by faith in the promises of God. So, that's our encouragement from these verses. But then secondly, I want you to look at verse 9. And we see that Paul was ambitious to please Christ. He says, Therefore, knowing that, knowing the fleeting nature of this world and this life, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The ESV says that we make it our aim to please Christ. And I love that imagery of that word because you can see, you can picture an, an archer taking aim at his target and he's he's seeking to hit the center of the target and that's what we have going on with our lives. We're taking aim. We wake up and we aim at pleasing Christ. We aim. We are intentional. We are attempting to do that which is pleasing Him in how we live, and how we use the gifts that we've been given, the resources that we have, in how we spend our lives on a daily basis. And friends, let me ask you, because I know that everyone here probably would agree with this statement. Yes, I, I, want, I, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. Of course we want to be pleasing to the Lord. But my question is, how often does that enter your mind? Because if we're like Paul and we're going to be ambitious to please Christ, then I recognize that life is not some kind of mindless reaction to events. It's not waking up purposeless. It's giving an intentional effort to live in a way that would be pleasing to Christ with how we steward the good gifts he's given to us. And friends, that is not a legalistic way to live. It is a loving way to live. I mean, just as we... Seek to please our spouse. We seek to please those who love us. So also, because we love Christ, we are seeking to please him. And so as you enter a new year, have you or would you take time to to ask God to show you, how might I be most pleasing to you in the coming year? In your home, in your work, in your relationships in stewarding what God has given you. How can I please the Lord? Because that's my aim. That's what I want. And I would love for this to be our constant testimony, to have this be a prayer on our lips. Lord, help me to aim with everything that is within me on pleasing you. Help me to be ambitious in seeking to please you, to do that which is honoring to you. Because the hope of heaven will be to the Christian a greater inspiration to serve, not some kind of excuse for laziness or indifference. And so, friends, is this your aim in the choices you make, in the decisions that you're making, with whatever is going on, that your aim is to be pleasing to Christ? Could this be a prayer that we take upon our lips? As individuals and as a church, Lord, what would you have for me? What would you have for me? Lord, make me ambitious to please you. So, the next motivation we see is the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, brethren, this verse carries with it a weightiness for all of us that I I think we need to embrace instead of explain away too quickly. I mean, we just need to think. The judgment seat of Christ is a place Where judgments are made. Not about petty quibbles or minor things, but about where men will spend eternity. This is about where the souls of men and women shall live forever. It is the judgment seat of Christ. It is Christ our Lord, who is the one presiding over this judgment, he will be there. He will be the one before whom all of creation appear. I mean, this is where all people, in all places, from all time, no exception, everyone is heading to this place, this courtroom. We shall all appear there. You will appear there at this judgment seat. It is a place, my friends, where the true character of all mankind will be manifest for all to see. It is the place where many, far too many, will be alarmed by the realization that Jesus Christ is indeed the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, and the Judge of all the earth. And it is where the saints of history And those who have placed their faith in Christ, no matter what their outcome in life was, they shall see him, and they shall finally be vindicated. Now, I recognize that I'm speaking primarily to a a group of Christ-loving, blood-bought saints. But I say again, this is a weighty reality for us. It is a judgment seat, brethren, I mean, don't we read there in Hebrews that it is appointed for men once to die and after that, the judgment? Unless we put any confidence in ourselves, we must be reminded again that if we stand there on anything other than the merit of Christ, we shall be condemned eternally. But as Christians, do we not have the hope and the promise that in him we have the redemption of, of sins? That we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of sins. Excuse me. It is our only hope that when we arrive at that judgment seat, not because of the things that we have done, but because of Christ, we shall be welcomed into the gates of glory. And so the question is as Christians, what about us? Are we going to stand there? Or is this just for unbelievers to take heed? Well, brother, I want you to notice two things about this. First of all, It is a certainty. We read, we must all appear. Not they, as in unbelievers only. You're going to be there, friend. You're going to be there. It's inevitable. We're all headed towards that great day, and no one escapes. No one gets to be absent from the judgment of the omniscient God. So we are going to be there. And I want you also to notice something that is a reality, whether we Enjoy it or not. Notice that our actions in this world have consequences. What is the basis for the judgment? Look at the text. What is the the basis for this judgment? Do we not read that it is the deeds in the body? Now, brethren, hear me. I, I... I might not be able to explain all that this verse means, but I don't want us to miss the fact that that by some measure, we are going to be judged by the deeds in the body. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't sound like what I know of Scripture. Are we we covered? Didn't you just read that we have redemption through his blood and, and our sins are forgiven? Yes, of course. Thank God. But have you ever read Matthew 25? Jesus is going to say, on that day, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me? Did you give me something to eat? In other words, he's not going to ask if, you're, if you profess faith in him. He's going to ask, what did you do? Did you serve me? If no, then the indication is that your heart was not changed, and you did not love me. So depart from me. And yet there will be others who out of love, they gave and served and sacrificed, and they will be judged as faithful servants because of how they lived. This isn't the only place we read this. Listen to Revelation 20. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from those whose, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Now, brethren, we are not to be motivated by fear and go off attempting some kind of meritorious works. However, there is a reality that Jesus calls to account the deeds we have done in the body because it will reflect the condition of our hearts. And so the question is, how do we live in light of this reality? I mean, that's the question we want to ask, especially in the context of facing a new year, right? And so the question is, are you putting before yourself and your family the great reality that all of life has a purpose? Everything we do has a purpose. All of our actions have consequences. And brethren, I would just plead with you exactly what Paul says in the come in the next verse. Therefore, because of the judgment seat of Christ, knowing the fear of the Lord. We persuade men. That's how he's living. That's how Paul takes this. Knowing the fear of the Lord. You see, Paul's building his case. And after speaking of Christ's judgment seat, he says, now in light of that, in light of the fear and all that that inspires, we're going to persuade men to live in light of that day. Because it is a fearful thing for even the most godly Believer, to stand before Christ in his judgment seat. And yet this fear, this, this reverence, this holy awe of the majesty of Christ, judging the great and small, is to constrain us to live for him now. It's to constrain us to live for him now. You see, Paul's not wanting to terrorize his readers. Paul's not aiming to, to put them into some kind of paralyze fear where they don't know how to react. Rather, he's hoping to help us see the gravity of life, the brevity of life, and to move us from passivity to passion, from ambivalence toward ambition to do good. Brethren, we're not here to be some kind of unengaged alien just passing through. We're to be watchful and intentional, especially in light of the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Because friends, there's not going to be joking around or scoffing at this judgment seat. Oh, people, especially young people, they they like to speak and joke about what they will say in this day and how they will react and the questions they will ask. But this is a place where every mouth will be shut. And we will see with our own eyes, the infinite beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet others are going to see the terrifying reality that the King of glory has come in judgment and they have rejected him. On that day, we're going to see the significance of the lives we lived and the importance of how we stewarded the gifts God has given us. And so, friends, I just want to say this for your encouragement. On that day, not one single tear will be shed because anyone did too much for Christ or endured too many trials or suffered through too long a season of difficulty. On that day, your life will look like a vapor. And he is worthy of everything that you give to him. We must be people who live for eternity. We must be people who live in light of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the next motivation, interestingly, is the love of Christ. Look, let, let me just read verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, brethren, here we see the crown jewel of all motivations to live for the Lord and his love after speaking of Christ's judgment Christ's judgment Paul now speaks of the greatest motivation for him and for us to give ourselves to Christ and it is his love friends i would submit to you that the more mature we are as christians the more christ's love will motivate everything we do everything we do Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, the constraining factor for all that I do is Christ's love for me. That is mature faith. Amen? That is mature faith. And so here we see the greatest constraint, the chief motivation, and it's not our love for Christ." Rather, it is his love for us. And we know that because Paul went on to describe this love. And he describes it by saying that Christ died for all. And so in in light of that great exchange of Christ laying down his life, of him taking our sin upon himself, Paul finds this great incentive to spend the rest of his earthly life living for the Lord. And brethren, is it not a magnificent thing to be constrained and controlled and motivated by love? It is the strongest motivation. It is the strongest thing imaginable. Song of Solomon says, love is as strong as death. Love is as strong as death. There's nothing more powerful than to be compelled by love. And it should be our great aim as Christians to be so saturated in Christ's love for us. Because in that, we're going to find the greatest constraint to live for him. We read in Scripture that many waters cannot quench love, neither can, can floods drown it. You show me a person who, who, who believes that he is loved by Christ, who knows he is loved by Christ, who sees that in the Word and lives by it, and I will show you a person who is constrained to live by it to his Master, who lives in service to his Master. Many waters cannot quench love. You cannot kill it with a sword. You cannot extract it by trials. You cannot make someone suffer so much that love is broken. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Never. And so, what a glorious thing to be controlled by the love of Christ. Because, friends, we just think, if... if. If this reality sinks in, it will affect every area of our life. If I know Christ loves me, I will trust him completely, with no hesitation. He loves me, therefore I can trust him with my wife, with my children, with my past, with my present, with my future. All of it. Why? Because anything that Christ does to me, through me, or for me, is done in love. It is. And if we can lay hold of that, gone will be our desire to maintain the illusion of control over every circumstance of our lives. But we have to believe this. We have to lay hold of this, friends, because I can tell you a lot of things about Christ's love for us. And we can read Scripture until you're blue in the face. But until you are convinced of Christ's love for you, you will not be controlled by it. How quickly, how quickly unbelief rears its ugly head when you read your Bible. It's as though you can read all of Scripture and embrace all of it until you come to reading of Christ's love for you. But he really does love you. I mean, I hope, I hope as you read your Bibles, I hope you read that I hope, I hope you don't read it in such a way that Christ came and did some kind of all these good works towards humanity in general. I hope we can rather instead see the King of glory who came and laid down his life for you. It was not some impersonal people. He gave his life for you, Isaiah said, or God says through Isaiah the prophet to His people, He says, "God says, you are precious in My sight, and I love you." Because when you when you see that, when you grasp something of. Of the love of Christ, that He died for you, that He really did take your sin, brother and sister. He really took it from you. He really bore your sin so that you could be His righteousness. It will have a constraining power on your life. You will not be able to be the same. You will not live for yourself. You will not go live in the garbage of this world. You will be constrained by love to be pure, to be holy to live for him, to give yourself to him. So are you controlled by the love of Christ or does your fear of the future betray you? Are you constrained by his love or does your worry and anxiety betray you? His friends This reality has a lot of implications for us, but it's going to produce peace. It's going to produce joy. It's going to produce a trust within us that knows our master is doing these things out of love, and it will produce humility. Not in a passive way, but in a way that says, I know he's working all things for my good. He has promised You see, this really does change things. You ask somebody, why are you serving at church that way? Because I love the Lord. Why are you sacrificing so much, mom, to be at home with your kids? Go do something with your life. You ever hear that? Because I love the Lord. He's called me to this. I'm giving myself to this because I wouldn't trade it for anything else. Because I love him. Why do you refuse to complain when you obviously have had so many unbearable circumstances in your life? And the answer for this person is because I know my master. And I know he loves me. And I'm trusting him in the darkness of difficulty to work all things for my good because I've read that he has promised to do that. Perhaps it's an overstatement, friends, but if we could all just boil down our greatest need into one prayer, maybe it would just be this. Father, I am your child. Please help me to believe how much you love me. It's not a selfish prayer, brethren. Because Paul says... He's controlled by it, and he's controlled by it because he's concluded this. He says, we thought about it, and we realized something. We realized that if Christ died for us, and then one of the reasons he died is so that we would no longer be enslaved to living for our own desires and comfort. But now we're free. We're free to live for him. And so we need to make that conclusion ourselves, don't we? Someone has said, that he who is a slave to the compass has the freedom of the ocean. In other words, you can be anywhere in the ocean you want to be. If you are devoted to that little device, you will know where you are at all times. Likewise, brethren, when you're devoted to Christ, when his love controls you, circumstances can change. God has different things for each of us but you will always know your position in him, in him. Is this your testimony, friends? Have you made the same conclusion that since Christ died in your place, that you're now going to live for him? Because that's Paul's aim, that we would conclude this, that we would make the same, it seems logical, doesn't it? It seems logical, proper, and even expected, that we would say, my life must be lived for him. I want to give myself to him. Now, brethren, I just need a minute to say something very plainly to those here who continue to reject Christ's love. You, I don't know who you are, but you may think of yourself as a fairly good person because, I mean, you're in church after all. You try to be a decent person. You're familiar with the Bible. You try to do what's good. You're not controlled by the love of Christ. And you know that you don't love him. And his atoning death on the cross is nothing more than a nice story. Please hear me. If that's you, your heart is so much more wicked than you know. Your heart is the blackest pit of the most dismal selfishness and unbelief. If that is you, your heart is a factory that produces nothing but a rotten stench to God. It is filled with the most horrible idols imaginable. If you could see the great offense it is to God, that you would count yourself independent of Christ, and you would count yourself outside of his love, and not in need of his love, it would terrify you. And so the reason you reject, the reason your heart is so wicked, is because you reject his love for you, and you do not love him which in one sense is the very essence of evil. You have not concluded rightly, as Paul did, that since he died in your place, you must live for him. And this morning, I just call you to that right now. Confess your need of Christ. Confess your wicked unbelief and ask this gracious God to pour out his love into your heart. My prayer would be just as we read here in verse 16. Paul says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him no longer this way. See, up until this point, you think Christ is just some some, some being. Not anymore, friends. May this be the day that you say, I need Christ. I need him. See him as the savior of your soul. The love of Christ is a magnificent motivation for all of us. But then next, I want us to see the power of Christ. Verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, brethren, we see this very familiar verse seventeen, which is quoted many times. And we now know that this is what is needed if we are to be chained from sinful human beings who counted Christ as just some man who could do nothing for us, to now being a God-loving, Christ-exalting, selfless servant who delights to serve him. And that change is not some kind of moral restart. It's not now attending church and reading your Bible. We need to be recreated. We need to have new hearts. We need to have new desires that, that delight to obey Christ. And friends, this does not happen apart from Christ. He must recreate you. He must give you this heart. He must completely destroy the old self and give you a new heart, a recreated heart that beats for his glory. That's what has to happen. And I put this under the power of Christ because it's amazing to me to see the power of Christ on display when he really gets a hold of somebody and he changes them. There is no human explanation to the change that comes about When Christ regenerates a soul, when somebody recognizes that he does not count their trespasses against them, but has reconciled them to himself, it is a powerful change, a change that cannot be brought about by any amount of manipulation, logic, eloquence, or charisma, because if those things could do it, we would give ourselves to that, but it does not happen. Only the power of Christ can bring this about. Only the power of Christ can reach in and destroy the old man and recreate a new one in him. Give him a new heart, a new desire to serve him, to please him. Isn't that our hope in sending missionaries and praying for them? That's why we gather and pray for our missionaries, isn't it? Because we have faith in the power of Christ to change hearts. That's our prayer for the unbelieving among us and those whom we love, that Christ would bring about the change in our lives, in their lives. Friends, the question is, how is this motivation to help to serve the Lord? How how can we take this? Now, let me ask you, do you still believe that Christ does change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh? Do you believe he still does that, friends? Because if we believe that he still has the power wrangle the worst of sinners and bring light into a darkened heart, it's going to do something to how we live. We're going to live out the song that we sang about taking the gospel to the nations, right? And even among ourselves, I would, I would venture to say that we could expect to see the power of Christ at work in this way, to the degree that we are faithful to share the gospel. I, I, I believe we have hope that in our faithless generation, if we proclaim the gospel publicly and privately, it will lead to us seeing Christ and his power on display in the real life, soul-saving life transformation of people. Amen? We should be able to see that. God help us to see that he's still saving souls. He's still adding the most vile people to his kingdom's role. May God help us. May God help us not to have that stench of faithless idleness that that does not expect God to see people added to his kingdom. He doesn't expect God to bring this power about. And I would test ourselves with this. Do we anticipate our pastors using the baptismal waters this year? Is it something that we expect? Do we anticipate hearing, hearing testimonies of this very verse right here? I was, I, was a, I was totally lost, and yet Christ came and recreated me, and I love him. Could we not see that this year? I, I just want to put before you, as a motivation to pray, that Christ has the power to save. And I would say this. Take your eyes off of people. Look at the cross because that's the power and speak for him. Speak for Christ and expect great things because your faith is not in yourself. It's not in what you can do. It's in Christ and he has the power to save. Sixth is the commission of Christ. Look at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now listen. Therefore, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The commission of Christ, friends. The commission of Christ as a motivation to live for Him. What a privilege! He has commissioned certain ones to take the message of reconciliation to God. There is a sense in which Paul might be speaking of all of us because we're all ambassadors to some degree. We all represent Christ before other men. Our lives are on display. However, I think what he has in view here is Paul representing the apostles and subsequently the ministers of the gospel. These ambassadors are those from whom we hear the word of truth proclaimed. Those through whom the the appeal is given. Through them we hear the invitation of Christ through his word. And so what are we to make of this commission that Christ has given to his ministers? Are we all commissioned as ambassadors to fill this office? I mean, as if you're a believer, then in some sense you are an ambassador of Christ to take his message to others, to proclaim the good news that lost sinners can be reconciled to him. We're all that to some degree. There are clearly, however, some who are set aside as ambassadors for Christ, as pastors, as missionaries, sent out with a message with the commissioning of the king. And these people have the same burden that Paul had that we see coming from him when he says, we beg you, we beg you, we implore you, we beseech you, depending on what translation you had. It's a word of of convincing you, of, of asking you, be reconciled to God. And see, these people are people who read Scripture, maybe even this chapter, and see the case being built by Paul, and they begin to be burdened to take this message to the lost, not out of obligation, but out of love, as a passion and a plea to be reconciled to God. Now, what am I saying? Two quick things as far as applications to this point. One, listen to your pastors. We, of all people in this little church, have been blessed with godly men who stand up as pastors and speak God's word to us. They are devoted to the word. And when they stand to preach or you seek their counsel privately, though they are not perfect men, and there will be times they fail, they are ambassadors of God to us. Listen to your pastors. Malachi 2.7 for the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Our pastors are God's gifts to us, brethren. And I, I know you recognize that. I just want us to recognize that we should rightly heed their instruction as they guide and counsel us. But then secondly, I want to remind us that Christ is still in the business of setting apart and sending out his ambassadors. I mean, what are we to make of this, brethren? Is Paul the only one that has the logic in place to see where the magnificent work of Christ is in the recreation of men and that he would give himself, that he would be so moved in love to be his ambassador? And I just wonder if perhaps... Some of you would be set apart for ministry. Because I want you to notice the design of this chapter. Just listen. We have the promise of eternal life, therefore, we aim to please Christ. We have the judgment seat of Christ before us, therefore, we persuade men. We know the love of Christ, therefore, we live for Him. And we know the power of Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for him. you see the pattern? It's knowledge, motivation, action. There's movement. We're to labor for him. Friends, soldiers don't enlist in the army to sit in tents and play cards. They enlist to go to the front lines and fight in the same way. Christians are not called to to, to enjoy comfortable chairs and a lot of programs in church. We're called to be engaged in the battle for souls, to be ambassadors for him. I mean, brethren, this should astound us. What? God is beseeching sinners through his ambassadors that they should be reconciled to him? This is a God of mercy. This is a God of mercy. And so what I want to put before you is that we we need to get a hold of this, to recognize the fleeting nature of this world, to see that eternity lies before us and the days are passing by. And we need to see that Christ still has the power to recreate people and go speak his message of reconciliation to the world. I'm not saying that everyone here needs to go try to fill the office of, of pastor or missionary, whatever it may be. But someone's got to take the message to the world. Someone is going to be so motivated that Christ loves sinners and that he died for them, that they might live. Someone is going to be moved by Christ's love and his love for the lost, that they will believe in Christ and take his message to the world. Someone must go. Someone's going to have to represent Christ. Someone's going to have to preach the gospel. Someone's going to implore men to be reconciled to God. Someone is going to be an ambassador of the king of kings to the lost worlds. And I wonder if that's some of you. Because for Christ's sake, someone must go. Someone must go. An ambassador. An ambassador of the king. Finally and quickly, the message of Christ He made him, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brethren, I need to be brief on this, but we know if you're going to be an ambassador, if you're going to be a believer, you must know the message. You must know the message of one, the one who's sending you. And this verse is a condensed version of why we're all here. Here we see the picture of the King of Glory described as one who knew no sin. He was and is perfectly pure and holy. And because of the indescribable love of the Father, the Son was sent. And he went joyfully, we are told, to be for us what we could never be. Perfect. We see the sinless Son who came from the throne room of heaven, where he was worshipped eternally, surrounded by myriads of angels who glorified him, wrapped in majesty like no mind can imagine, clothed in purity and infinite beauty. And he came, he left heaven's glory to take on humanity and become the sacrifice made once and for all, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And brethren, we know this. When he hung on that cross and the soldiers were inflicting pain upon him, That is not why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Our Lord Jesus Christ carried our sorrows and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And brethren, this is a message of hope. This is a message of hope to the most vile people who need salvation. It is a message to those who are far off, who need to be brought near and reconciled. It is this. You, with all your sin and wickedness, no matter how bad it may be, can be given the very righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and call upon him and he will save you. That's the message we have. How can that motivate us, brethren? seems like a silly question when you put it in that context. Motivate? We need motivate, Brethren, has not Christ stood in our place and become sin for us? Have you not experienced the joy that brings to your soul? Does your, not, does your heart have compassion for those who still have not heard this message? Brethren, I say to you, really you have received the gospel. Really give it. Freely give it. Go to the world. Go to the neighbors. Go so that others may hear and believe the gospel. And the King of glory, the Lamb who was slain, might receive the full reward of his suffering. So friends, I put before you this chapter, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, certainly about the greatest person in the Bible, in the universe, with some of the greatest motivation for living for him. And I would pray that he would help us to do just that. Right. Lord God, to the degree that I have been true to your word, I pray that you would seal it to our hearts and help us to be your servants, your ambassadors, your messengers to the nations. But help us first to be so secure in your love for us that anything you would ask, we would do willingly and quickly for your name's sake. In Christ's name.